Isn't that a great lyric, Nothing Stands Between Us? Isn't that a great lyric? You know, I, I appreciate Steve's prayer and, uh, um, and, and, I, and I do, I mean, we know that when we stand in glory, when we are before his majesty, that our eyes will be open to see things as we've never seen before. You know, because the Bible says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall behold him as he is. It's only then will we be, in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will we be transformed into that perfect state, into the, to be like him. And, uh, and again, we say, you know, 99.95% of the work will be done in that moment. And, and, and from here until then, God is constantly um, transforming us from glory to glory, as Corinthians tells us, into that image of Jesus Christ. But, but all of that, even while all that process goes on, nothing is dependent upon me for the closeness to God, which I truly experienced. Do you understand what I mean by that? You know, nothing does stand between us. Nothing. The intimacy of relationship that we have with the eternal God is really beyond our own understanding. You know that? He's so close to you. He's so much a part of you. You know, the Bible tells us he dwells within us, doesn't it? He dwells within us. The promise of Jesus was that he would be with us always, even until the end of the age. The promise of the scripture is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. There is an intimacy of relationship that you and I enjoy right this very moment. As Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Father, make them one with us as I am one with you. That unity of being, that's who you are. One with the God of heaven. And that's a glorious thing. That's what Romans is all about. You know that? That's what this book of Romans is about, is that, uh, is that righteousness that comes from heaven that makes us part of who God is. That's hard to comprehend. It's a very dangerous statement, isn't it, really? Because we don't comprehend it fully and people can come up with some very strange ideas. But the reality is you are so close to God. There is no division. There is no separation. That's why Jesus went to the cross to make us one with him. And uh, I, I just think it's good to stop and pause and just meditate upon that reality that truth from time to time. I encourage you during your week, do so, you know. And then when the voice of this world comes in and the distractions of this world sneak in to try and convince you that God is far from you, you hear that, don't you? Every, every day, the experiences and the difficulties of work and struggles that we have in relationships and, and all this sort of thing when we start to feel that we are either at sea or we are standing by ourselves. No, that's not true. You are so close. God is so close that there is no part of separation between us. Jesus has seen to that. It's wonderful, isn't it? To be in a child of God. Mm, amen. Um, that was good. I, I, I love that. That was good worship. That was, that was sweet. That's, that's a horrible, that's not the right word, is it? But that was, was, it really was. Um, I've, got to, I've got to now, here's the flow I've got to change. If um, this trip to Israel in January, um, no pressure, but if anybody is thinking about it or looking to be a part of it, um, I think the deadline is um, September. So um, if you're serious, come and see me and let me know and we'll make sure... Because they're, they're waiting on numbers. That's, that's the whole thing. And, um, okay. That's all I need to say about that. How are you? They're good? That's excellent. Well, let's open the book of Romans. Um, and as you're turning to the book of Romans, there is, um, um, you know, God is good all the time, isn't he? You know, we pray, don't we? And we ask God to touch our lives and touch the lives of those that are near and dear to us. And, and every week we ask for people. And last week, you know, we, we prayed for Marcos and, um, and uh, he had such a great report this week. I mean, because he was facing, am I allowed to say this? Yeah, he, he, he had tests this week and we were, we were talking previously about heart surgery and things like that. And uh, at the moment, no. 
God is working. Isn't that good? Yeah. So we're going to leave it. This is what he says. We're going to leave it for another 12 months. So they're happy to leave it for 12 months. Isn't that good? God is good, isn't he? Yeah. The urgency is gone. And uh, thank you. And we thank the Lord for that. Have we got new grandparents? Oh, yeah. Are they here? Paul. I saw Paul earlier. Are you still here, Paul? Oh, there you are. Congratulations, man. He's a granddaddy again. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, all right, let's, um, let's quickly, not quickly, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, that uh, we never stand alone. And even as that song declares, Father, the intimacy of relationship that we enjoy with you because of who you are and what you've done is beyond our understanding. But Lord, we revel in the victory of it. We delight in the joy of it. We rest in the peace of it, Lord, and we live with anticipation and the hope of it, knowing, Lord God, that you who began a good work in us will complete it, Father. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for this hope and this joy, this glorious peace. Be with us all. Be with our family, those that are not with us. Father, watch over them. Be with those that are joining us online, Lord. Bless them as they gather before your word. And Lord, bless us all, we pray that we might be the blessing that you want us to be. Those of us that are struggling, Lord, in our health, we thank you that you are the great physician. And, and we pray, Lord, that your hand would be powerfully upon the lives of our brothers and sisters who at this moment are just not well, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you are our everything. You are our all in all. Speak to us now according to your perfect will for our individual lives, that we might be encouraged, that, Lord, that we might be strengthened, that this day, that the work of your Spirit, Lord God, would continue to transform us into that glorious image, Christ your Son. Thank you for these things. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, good morning again. We are in the book of Romans. Uh, let me say... Um, let me put that there. Let me say, um, as we do each fortnight, uh, we like to conclude our service gathering around the communion table. And I just want to encourage you as we consider God's word, um, let, it in, let it remind you always that um, uh, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of what he did upon the cross. You know, this word has no power if there was no cross. Isn't that right? But because of the cross... The power of the gospel message is to save, is to transform, is to um, work God's perfect will in our lives. And so we're going to finish this morning by gathering around the communion table. I trust that you would allow the word to minister to your heart and prepare your heart to just join together as a family in this sacred feast that reminds us that it was really all about him. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Um, we're starting at verse 17 this morning. Are you all there? When we get to the end of the chapter, we'll, uh, we'll just make our way through it. So in the opening chapters, I've said this probably each week now, but in the opening chapters of Romans, mankind has been brought... Actually, I haven't said this. What mankind is, what is happening is that mankind has been brought into the courtroom of a holy, righteous, perfect God. And what we quickly realize as we enter into the scripture is that all of humanity, and we, and, and, you know, and we know it in our hearts, we really do, as we look around this world and we, and we examine our own hearts, we know, as the scripture reveals, that all of humanity stands guilty in the presence of his holiness. And this, will be, this, this is what the conclusion that Paul is wanting to bring us to in these opening chapters. If I just jump ahead, it says in chapter 3 and verse 10 that there is, we know these verses, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11 of chapter 3 says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. He says, no, not one. So when we say, good morning, how are you going? And we instinctively say, good. Of course, the Bible is telling us we're not. We're doing okay. 
That's what we're saying. But no one is good, not even one. No one can stand before God because they, one and all that is, are corrupt by sin. All of us, every single one of us, have been corrupted by the sin, by sin, firstly by the sin nature we are born with and the sin practicality of the choices that we make. No one is righteous. There are no excuses. We've read this in Romans. There are no excuses and there are no escapes from this reality. Every one of us, excuse me for saying this, is defective. Every single one of us. There will be no words that any of us could say to defend ourselves as to why our sin is acceptable before God's righteous standards of holiness. No words to offer. That is why we read again in chapter 3. I know I'm jumping ahead, but in chapter 3 it says in verse 19 that every mouth will be stopped and all the world will or may become guilty before God. All stand guilty in the docks. Do you agree? So there's no perfect people in this room. I'm happy about that. All stand guilty in the docks, for there is no partiality with God. And uh, that's a big problem in the passage we're looking at this morning. But the glorious liberating truth, and lest I leave you in that dark place, the glorious liberating truth is that there is a righteousness of God that has or that has been revealed that is apart from the law. That is, God has made a way for us to be righteous. Please hear this. And I know you know this, but I want you to hear it again. God has made a way for us to be righteous without being 100% perfect 100% of the time, which is God's standard. Remember, this is what righteousness is. Righteousness refers to the character or, if you will, the status that is enjoyed by someone who conforms to a standard that has been set. That's what it is. Someone is righteous before God if they measure up to God's standard of holiness and goodness. And what is that standard? It's perfection. He's a perfect God. He sets that standard because he himself is perfect. It's not as if it's a, he got up in this one morning with some capricious act and said, OK, I'm going to make the rules that everybody has to be absolutely perfect. That's not what it is. His standard is perfection because he himself is perfection. And perfection can have not, can have not, isn't that great? Cannot have fellowship with imperfection. Do you understand that? I mean, we do it with our children, don't we? We can only see it from the negative side. We only can see it from our own side of unrighteousness. And that is, you take a glass of crystal clear, pure water that we love to drink, right? And then you take a glass of, say, I don't know, red cordial, which we don't love to drink. You take that red cordial and that crystal clear water and you place them together in a bowl. What happens? Where's your crystal clear water gone? It is destroyed, isn't it? You see, that's seeing it from our perspective, but the reality is it's from God's perspective, and that is absolute holiness and righteousness exist. And if unrighteousness comes into its presence, the righteousness isn't destroyed. The righteousness of God isn't destroyed. What's destroyed? The unrighteousness of man. We've got to understand that. Perfection cannot have fellowship with Perfection. So the truth is that the perfection of God condemns every single one of us. We can't be saved by being perfect. Why? Because we can't be perfect. We've got to understand this is who we are. We can't save, be saved by being perfect because we can't be perfect. Most of the world is trying to be good enough, aren't they? And most of the world will have a testimony that says, well, I'm a good person. I'm good enough. No. No, 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 no. No one is good enough. We can't be saved by being perfect. I'll say it for a third time. Because we cannot be perfect. We can't keep laws. That's how you be perfect. 
by keeping laws, by keeping commandments that God has laid down. But let me say it again. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, apart from the commandments. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 16. Hear these words. He said, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified. You know what justified means? It means made perfect. A man is not justified, made perfect by the work of the law, by the keeping of commandments, that is, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified, we may be made perfect. How? By faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, not by the things that we do. Since by the works of the law, the things that we do, since by that no one can be justified. No one can be made perfect. That's why our salvation is so glorious. It really is. That's why we gather in a place like this and we worship the one and the true and the living God. We are saved by grace and grace alone through faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Because why? Because he alone is perfect. He alone is perfect. So again, what Romans is doing is, is proving in these opening chapters that all of humanity is guilty before God. Chapter 1, we looked at it, didn't we? And looked at the unrighteousness of man. That willful disobedience, the corruption, the sin that is evident in humanity. Chapter 2 started to look at the guilt of the self-righteous. And last time we were together, we were looking at the hypocrite. And now it turns its attention towards the guilt of the religious person. And we can fall into this, can't we? The religious person who thinks that they are accepted by God because they possess God's truth. Does that hurt to say that? I hope not. This was the problem that the Jews in the Turst in the first testament in the first testament in the new testament let me get it right this is the problem that the jews in the new testament had in the time of paul and the time of christ is that hey they were given god's word the hebrew nation the jewish people since the time of abraham since the time of moses were given the oracles of god and what a glorious thing that was when god intervened in human history he called out a people under himself. He developed a nation, the Hebrew nation, and he gave them his word for humanity. But they saw themselves as being privileged above all others because of it. That's what happened. Look at verse 17 with me. This is Paul's argument against religiousness. He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew. And rest on the law and make your boast in God. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. So they had this great sense of privilege. First of all, their sense of privilege began with their name, who they were. They were the Jews. This, the word Jew actually came from the Hebrew Yehuda or Judah, which is one of the sons of Jacob, which carries with it the thought of praise. Judah means to praise. In fact, it's the praise of, Jeho of Yahweh. It's what the, the name Jew actually means, the root, root meaning of it. You hear it in all of their writings. You hear it in the Psalms especially. I picked out one Psalm just to read you so that you can hear this, this, um, this name and this pride and this, uh, this uh, sense of we are extremely special people. Not being critical of the Psalm, but hear it, would you? This is Psalm 49. It says in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. We know this, don't we? Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise in the assembly, the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praise to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure where? In his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the, the saints 
be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let them high, let the high praises of God be in their mouths and the two-edged sword within their hand. Notice this, to execute vengeance on who? On the nations and punishment on the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment. This is the honor of the saints of God. Praise the Lord, it says. That's, this is the honor that they, as God's special people, had. Could you, could you, so you're certainly inspired of God, but you, can you hear in those words how they could easily, and they were indeed, lifting themselves up into a place where we are very special. We are very special. This is the honour of the saints of the Hebrew people. You see, what has happened is that they boasted in God, seeing themselves again as his exclusive favourites. That was their boast. When Romans says, as we read a moment ago, and know, they know his will and they prove, they prove the things that are excellent, the idea is that they were prideful in themselves and able to make superior moral judgments. Because why? Because they'd been instructed of the law. They are the ones with the unique wisdom. They were the ones who were instructed of God and it led them to this very superior position in their hearts and their minds over all other nations. And why not? Hey, And why not? Because they possess the truth. I'm trying to bring you to a place here. I'm trying to bring you to a place where we can stop and say, hang on a minute, that was the Jews 2,000 years ago. What about me today? What about me today? Let's think about ourselves. We have the truth, do we not? We have the truth. In fact, we have a greater revelation of the truth than any of the ancient Jews had. We have the New Testament revelation, haven't we? And most of us in this room have got multiple translations of that revelation. We know the Bible so well, brothers and sisters, that we can find a scripture for any situation at all, can't we? Every situation in life, we can find revelation from God that has been spoken into the hearts of God's people. We have the complete revelation of God from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of God's eternal glory. We've got it all. Haven't we? You say yes, because we have. We have the full counsel of God. Now, hey, there's nothing wrong there. That's glorious, isn't it? You know, there's nothing wrong with the advantage that we have as God's people of having God's complete word. Nothing wrong with it. You know, we can approve the things that are excellent. The scripture tells us that, right? As long as we don't fall into this same trap that Paul is speaking about here. As long as we don't think that they make us or give us special standing with God. Because knowing the word, having the word, that alone gives you no standing at all. You know that? No standing at all. As long as I don't think that all is well between me and my God. Because I know the Bible so much better than Mr. Average Joe out there. I can't allow that to happen. It's a delusion. It's a delusion that is dangerous. It's a delusion that is dangerous. It is a prideful, arrogant presumption about my own spiritual well-being. And that's never a healthy place to be as a believer. Keep reading with me. Notice what it says in verse 19. And you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds good. That's how they saw themselves. They were guides. They were lights. They were instructors. They were teachers. But hang on a minute. They saw themselves, excuse me, as that. And at the same time, they saw everybody else. How? Everybody else was blind because they were the guides. 
They had the light. Everybody else was blind. Everybody else was darkened. Everybody else was, everybody else was foolish. Everybody else was immature and ignorant. As one commentator, he put it this way, and he said, the very privilege which should have produced saints instead produced arrogant, loveless egotists. Hear that? It's a great quote, isn't it? The very privilege that should have produced saints instead produced arrogant, loveless egotists. That was the Jews 2,000 years ago. That's who Paul is writing to here in this book directly. But I must recognize that that very same prideful presumption upon religious privilege can breed all sorts of ugliness in me. All sorts of ugliness in me. Self-righteous, self-centered, self-deceiving ugliness that is evident probably to everybody else but me. That's what it does. I mean, Jesus spoke about this in the parables. You go into, uh, into Luke's gospel. You know this parable well in Luke 18 where Jesus says, speaking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. It says in Luke 18, speaks of verse 10, it speaks of two men. They went up to the temple to pray. You know the parable, don't you? They went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You ever prayed that prayer? You ever looked down on society and thought that? may not have been a prayer, but have you ever thought it? Have you allowed your position with God and your understanding of the scripture cause you to look down and go, I'm glad I'm not like that guy? Lie to me and say it's never happened. They went to the temple to pray, and one of them, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself: "God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess." And the tax collector, standing afar off, isn't it a beautiful picture? would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What? That is glorious in that guy. But what a tragic thing it is for a follower of Christ to feel superior to anybody on this planet. Anybody. Proverbs chapter 29 tells us in the 23rd that it is the humble spirit that obtains honor. The humble spirit, you know. You look at Jesus in the scriptures. Just look at Jesus in the scriptures. Of him it says in Philippians, I love the Apostle Paul's heart because he recognizes this. Remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one that was held up and lifted up as somebody in his life prior to meeting Christ. And I love it that Christ, when he appeared to him, put him on the ground. Put him on the ground. You know the story, don't you? And from the ground, he looked up and said, Lord. And from there, his life changed. From the ground, looking up, he said, Lord. And there, his life changed. I think it should be true of all of us. Why? Because what did Jesus do? He came from the heavens to the ground, didn't he? From the heavens to the earth. It says in Philippians chapter 2, it made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. What did he do? He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And to this, the Apostle Paul challenges every believing heart by saying, you let this mind which is in Christ Jesus be in you. You let this mind be in you. You let this mind captivate you. You let this mind lead you and direct you. You let this mind speak to you about every other human being on this planet. Here to serve. I'm here to lift up. I am never here to look down upon anybody. No child of God, I don't care who they are or what they have achieved for the kingdom, has ever been called by God to ever look down upon another human being. But every child of God, like Jesus, has been called to come under and to lift up. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? I'm glad you answered me. That is right. Jesus nowhere said... 
I am the God of creation. You grovel before me, you lesser beings. You don't hear that, do you? No. He could have. Oh, he absolutely could have. And he would have been perfectly justified in doing so. But he said, no. What did he say? He said, he said in Matthew's gospel, he said, but rather, you come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, he says, I will give you rest. Then he says this, you take my yoke upon you, hear this, and learn of me. Learn what? Learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. He said, I'm gentle, the word is meek. I am lowly, the word is humble. I am gentle and I am humble of heart. What a contrast that is to the heart that says, I am superior. What an absolute contrast. To such people, the superior. This is a very simple message this morning. Paul asked questions to such people, the superior. Would you read it with me in verse 21? He says, you therefore, you superior ones who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob the temples? He says, you stand as teachers before men, but do you bother to even teach yourself? You stand as teachers before men, but have you allowed the word of God to speak to your own heart, to instruct you? You teach that a person shouldn't steal, but have you ever coveted something that belongs to somebody else? This one hits us all, doesn't it? You know? You teach that a man should not commit adultery. Hey, but what's going on in your heart? You know, what, what person are you lusting after? What someone else's wife have you lusted after? What someone else who is not yours have you lusted after? You teach a man that they should not worship idols, but what sits and who or who or how sits upon the throne of your heart? What's your master passion today? What are you worshipping today? He's saying, hey, you who teach, have you taught yourself? Have you allowed the scripture to change who you are? You see, here's the thing. Even if they had never outwardly committed any of those sins, here, isn't it? They've committed them in their hearts. And we know they are guilty. And Paul knew they were guilty. Just as he knew he was guilty. Just as we all know that we are all guilty. Because as with all people... The problem's got nothing to do with what we do or where we do it or how we do it. The problem is always a problem of the heart. Isn't that right? Again, as I said to you last time we were together, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Exposing this corrupted human heart of man and comparing it to the righteousness of a holy God. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, you have no wise entered the kingdom of God. And I know that statement, with that statement, I know the disciples that heard those words, threw their hearts up or threw their hands up and said, well, who? Who can be saved then? Because practically, the Pharisees, the people that Paul is talking to here, the religious, practically, there was none more righteous than they. They committed their entire lives to doing it right. Doing it right, but their hearts were far from God. That's the issue, right? The hearts are far from God. So what is Paul doing? Paul is doing away with the Jews' false security that they, that they derived, I should say, from being the custodians of God's word. And it should speak to us this morning. It really should. He's drawing attention to the fact that they are no more special than anybody else for their lives did not measure up to the truth that they themselves possessed. Does yours? Come on, be honest with me. Doesn't, does it? No, our lives don't. I promise you, every single one of us have defiled the righteousness of God today in our own lives just by getting out of bed and coming to church. Pride has been there. 
Egotism has been there. Selfishness has been there. We've walked past people we shouldn't have walked past. We've said things we shouldn't have said. We've thought things we shouldn't have thought about. I think thought things we shouldn't have thought about other people. Every single one of us. I don't say these things to condemn anybody. That's just the reality of our fallen nature. And it doesn't matter that we've got the scripture because the scripture alone can't save us. This is what Paul is trying to say. We're the custodians of the very oracles of God, you and I. The most precious thing that exists upon the face of this world. You know what it is? It's God's truth. It's more precious than anything that has been mined out of the earth. It's more precious than any, any syndicate or, or organization that has been raised up by humanity. Any more precious than any good cause. It is the most precious thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel message is the most precious thing on the face of this planet, and it's yours. It's yours to do what with? To know that you're saved? And to stand above? No, of course not. Of course not. This is what Paul wants to do. Any security that we have in just knowing the truth, he wants to do away with it. He's drawing attention to the fact again, I'll say it again, that none is more special than anyone else. Because our lives do not measure up to that truth. He knew that they knew, that you and I know, that the things that they confess, the truth that we confess, the things that we teach ourselves, he knew that they knew, that you and I know, that we violate those. Does that make any sense to you? We know it. Notice what it says in verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He said you do. For the name of God is blasphemed amongst Gentiles because of you as it is written. And this, of course, is the greatest shame, isn't it? It really is, because they claim to be so knowledgeable about the things of God, because they are quick to give people instruction about what God says, yet they themselves practice ungodliness. He says there, cause God's name to be blasphemed. And I sat down and I thought about this and I thought I could pull out a hundred different examples. But you all have hundreds of examples, you know. We know, don't we? There are countless stories where this takes place. And that is where someone will place the standard of holiness upon others, yet they themselves live a compromised life. And because of that, they become despised. Not only do they become despised, but the church that they belong to is labelled as a bunch of hypocrites. And not only that, but rather the gospel that they preach is spurned as a load of nonsense and gibberish. And beyond that, the God who they say they serve ultimately doesn't exist anyway. That's what he's saying. Your corruption in the things that you do compared to the things that you say causes God to be blasphemed. That's what he's saying to the Jews. Now, see, we have to realise that neither God... Please understand this. If you don't hear anything else today, realise this, that neither God nor anybody else in this world is impressed by our claims of truth. Do you know what I mean by that? Because this world, I mean, it, it amazes me. When I was a kid, I grew up and, you know, we had, well, first we had one television channel. You know, it was the ABC, right? Black and white, who remembers? I'm dating myself now, yes, I know. And I'll never forget the day that um, GWN came online, you know? And all of a sudden we had a choice of so things as kids that we could watch. It was amazing. It was incredible. And then one day dad comes home, first people in our street with a colour TV. Did you know that? First people. We had nothing else but we had a colour TV. <laughs> I can still remember, I can still see our kids, the, the, the kids in our neighbourhood sitting behind me watching the television and there I am with my pride and my sitting on our couch, you know, hey. This has got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I remember it well. I do remember it well. 
What am I talking about? We have to realize, I know what I'm talking about. Because now, I turn my television on at night. We don't have one channel, we don't have two channels. How many channels have we got? I lost them, lost count of how many channels we got. Is there anything good on any of them to watch? No, 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 you know what most of them are doing? Most of them are trying to tell you something, aren't they? Most of them are trying to coerce you into believing and investing in a certain truth. Their truth. They're selling you stuff, right? Most of these channels are doing that. But that's not just these channels. That's what the world is doing. And that's why I say nobody is really interested or impressed by your truth alone. Because they are being coerced by all sorts of people who for their own, own reasons who want others to buy into their truth. And the reality is most people are not impressed. They're not impressed. But what does impress them, and I know this is simple, and I know you know this, but what does impress them is a truth that produces a good, honest, trustworthy godliness in a person's life. Because they see it. They experience it from you. They don't just hear it. They experience it. So I've got to ask myself, as a Christian, does my truth does it make me a trustworthy person? Can you, would you ask yourself that? You know, does it make me a trustworthy person? As I said, it's not simply about the words that I profess, but rather, how does my profession affect my life? Are my rituals meaningful? See, I don't say that often, do I? Are our rituals meaningful? Baptism, church attendance, gathering around the communion table. They really have no meaning if we are not walking in godliness. If we are not honouring the Lord with our lives, the Lord who gave us these rituals. You see, I'm not going to read it because I'm out of time, but in the following verses, Paul talks about the Jews and their inherent belief in themselves, in the inherent holiness that they believed came with the act of circumcision. That was their ritual. They, they believed that circumcision, in fact, saved them. To the, to the Jew, the uncircumcised person was outside of the covenants of God. And was heaped together with all the non-Jewish nations as unbelievers destined to fodder the fuels of hell, fires of hell. That's what they believed. If you were not physically circumcised. Of course, that's not true, is it? You know, the scripture says whether I am circumcised, whether I am baptized, whether I am galvanized or pasteurized. You can throw all those words in there. Whether I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist, a Church of England or a Calvary Chapelite. I cannot place my confidence in any of those things. None of them. None of them. So the question I said to you in the very beginning is so very simple and so very straightforward today. Where does my confidence lay? Christian, where does my confidence lay? Is it in my knowledge of God's word? Is it in me knowing God's word? Is it even in my personal morality or my church attendance? Is it in my decent, good living? Well, of course, you know the answer is no, no, no. All, however, are true in the sense I need a growing knowledge of God's word. I don't want you to misunderstand me today. You and I need a growing knowledge of God's word. I need a personal morality that is measured by God's word. I need to be a part of a Christian fellowship where there is meaningful worship and there is meaningful rituals. I need all of this in my life. I need to live godly, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which I have been called. I need all of those things, but my confidence doesn't lay in any of them. It doesn't. 
My confidence lays in Christ Jesus who laid down his life for me. That's where it lies. Remember, it's a righteousness that is apart from the law. That's what God provides. That's what God, that's what God has saved us with. It's a righteousness that is apart from, let me say it in another way. It is a righteousness that is apart from anything to do with any merit that I may gain in the way that I live my life. The work of righteousness is fully accomplished by Jesus Christ, not by me. Righteousness apart from the law has nothing to do with our nature. It has nothing to do with our character, but it is prepared for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we receive it. How? As a free gift through faith. We receive it. We don't create it. We don't generate it. We don't do it. We receive it. That's the glorious thing about our glorious salvation. It's a free gift of God. And we receive it, let me say it another way, by abandoning all hope of salvation. Please hear this. By abandoning all hope of salvation from anything that we can do that is attached again to merit. Have you given up on all of that? Because I know we've all been in process. I know we all have in our lives tried to be the good person. Tried to be the one that God would accept. Tried to find the answers. We've all been down paths, haven't we? Every single one of us. But it's not until you abandon all hope of salvation from anything other than what God has done for you. God has provided it based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ upon his cross. Jesus was not some tragic pacifist martyr from history. That's not who he was. He was the son of God, right? I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know that. I know I'm singing to the choir. But he was the son of God. He was the perfect lamb of God. Jesus came willing to die upon the cross for you and I. He laid down his life absorbing, absorbing, sorry, the wrath that was due to my sin so that I might be forgiven and that I might receive his righteousness. That should make us weep. That should break us. It's the only place that I can lay my confidence. I like that statement. Because what do you do when you lay, when you lie down? What do you do? You rest. Don't you? you rest. It's the only where I can place I can rest. What a glorious thing it is. The only place. And this is what Romans is all about. This is why the book of Romans is, is this great book of revival in the heart of the child of God. He's done it all. How glorious is that? Can I read to you? Can I jump ahead to chapter 10 of Romans? This, 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 this captures basically everything I've said in chapter 10. You can turn there if you will with me. And then we'll gather around the communion table together. This is what it says. Let's say, let's start in verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say on your heart who will ascend into heaven. Because that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss because that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. See, this is what I love about that song we sang this morning. There is nothing between us, between you and I, because of what Christ has done. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew 
and Greek that is between Jew and anyone else. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. And don't we love verse 13? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a wonderful passage of scripture? Salvation is God's gift for you and I. Perfection is the gift of God to you and I. Are you ready for the communion table now? Are you ready as we gather around together to recognize what he has done? In fact, what his shed blood accomplished for us, what his body raised up on that cross did for us, the very bread of life, the very bread of life that we partake of. Think about it. It has imparted to you his life, God's very life. I don't want to say any more. As these emblems come around and the worship team comes forward, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go and sit down with my wife. But can you, can you just be still right now? Can you just for a couple of minutes meditate upon the reality that God has done this for me? As long as I tried and as long as I struggled, I was never going to be there because I never could be perfect. I could never be accepted by God in that way. But rather now the righteousness that comes from apart from, that is apart from the law, a righteousness that not as dependent upon me doing anything, but upon the fact that Christ has done it all, has set me free, as Steve said this morning. Set me free to lay down and to rest knowing that all is well between me and my God. You know, I often say, you know, it's wonderful to get to the end of the day and say, to lay your head on the pillow and just to know that all is well between you and God because you've done a good thing. You've had a good day. You've honoured your Father. You've honoured Christ. You've spoken in his name. But the reality is, even if you had a bad day, even if you stumbled, even if you missed an opportunity, even if you spoke the wrong thing, even if you walked in disobedience, you can lay your head on that pillow. Now, this is not cheap grace, but you can still lay your head on that pillow with grateful hearts that God accepts you, that God keeps you, that God wants to pick you up and he wants to dust you off, so to speak. He wants to embrace you in his arms and say, it's okay, my child, you're mine. I'll never let you go. See, that's rest, isn't it? That's peace, isn't it? That's comfort. It's all because of what Jesus has done. So you ready just to sit by yourselves for a minute? Consider who Christ is. Consider the richness of your salvation. And take these emblems. God bless you. Thank you.